0: So last Sunday, as I'm sure you are fully aware, we did not gather because of the snow. Um, So this week, we are going to come back to the passage that we were going to look at last week. And that's also why the worship guides have last Sunday's date on them, because the service was going to remain the same, and we figured we might as well not waste paper and print new bulletins just so the right date uh, is on the worship guide. So we are aware that this morning is not January 13th. We are in the midst this month of a vision series. Um, when we complete the vision series, then we're then going to do a longer series on the book of Esther, as I uh, shared a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm not, the original plan was to start that Esther series February 10th, but with us missing a Sunday, I'm not sure what we'll end up doing with the vision series, but at some point in February, we will be starting a uh, study of Esther. But this morning, we are going to look at a passage of Scripture from the New Testament, the book of Acts, and within the book of Acts, we're going to look at chapter 18. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, the passage is uh, printed in the worship guide if you want to follow along there. So our vision as a church is our dream. It's what we hope to see happen. It's the future that we envision together. And the City Church vision is stated like this. Because Jesus Christ is Lord over every square inch of the city, we imagine people, places, and things flourishing in the gospel. Now, two weeks ago, we focused on the words we imagine. Uh, We uh, had help from Ephesians chapter 3 as we gave thought to, what does it mean to have a kingdom, a Christian imagination? We said that imagination is what allows us to conceive in our minds the image of something that is not yet present. And we asked the question, if we want to imagine people, places, and things flourishing in the gospel, how do we do that? And the two things that we looked at were, by looking at the world through the lens of Scripture, and by also leaning into the world through the practice of prayer. So that was the sermon from two weeks ago. Thought it would be helpful to summarize it since we missed a week. This morning, as I said, we're going to look at Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, to help us think through the people, places, and things flourishing in the gospel portion of our vision statement. Christianity is not abstract, all right? Christianity is not abstract. It's concrete. God made people, places, and things to be glorious and whole. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus entered into a fallen world at a particular moment in history among a particular people in order to bring flourishing. Jesus fleshed out humanity. That's what the incarnation is all about. That word incarnation refers to God taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity, therefore, is incarnational, we could say. It's meant to be fleshed out in the real world of people, places, and things. Let me read Acts 18 uh, for us, and then we're going to examine this text through the lens of people, places, and things. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. "'I am innocent. "'From now on, I will go to the Gentiles.' And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord." together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's now pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to take us into this passage of Scripture to teach us and instruct us and help us to live uh, in alignment with it. Holy Spirit, come. Come and dwell with us. We pray that you would come alongside us as we look at this passage of Scripture. Bring it to life. Bring it to life so that it captivates our minds, our hearts, And we pray that you would apply it to us in the way that it needs to be applied this morning. And we trust, Holy Spirit, that you know us, you know where we are, whether in this moment we are believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We trust that you are able to come find us and lodge the word of God in our hearts in order that we might be changed. We pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. So we have this place... Uh, at City Church called the third place. Now, if you're not familiar with it, I'm not going to assume that all of you are, um, when we use the name or the term third place, we don't use that because we believe there's something special about finishing in third place, all right? That's not what the name uh, is meant to communicate. Rather, the third place is terminology or phraseology that's used in community planning. So here's how you can think about this. The first place refers to your home. The second place is the place where you work, your workplace. And third places are places in the community that are community gathering spaces. So we might think of cafes, coffee shops, restaurants, pubs, those kinds of places as third places. And um, coming up on four years ago, I think it was, we had a vision As we looked at the neighborhood that we lacked a third place like that at least outside of the summer months and so that was basically the formation of the third place but one thing that we regularly do as we facilitate the third place is we have regular art exhibits that um, are uh, facilitated by uh, joanne mearns and back in december that was the last one that we did Uh, I went uh, to check out the art. It was actually our annual ornament show um, for Christmas, uh, which is always our most popular exhibit of the year. Uh, We have uh, artists who craft and and make these ornaments, and then they're sold through our gallery. So those were the things, the ornaments, these pieces of art that brought people together in particular that night. So by the time I went over to the third place with my family that night, um, I... Had, uh, before that, I had been at a, an opening for uh, Kaylin and Samantha Bird's um, new shop that they have for their jewelry business in Trolley Square. And when I first walked in um, to their new shop there, I was greeted by um, one of our church members who had a friend with her. I'd never met this friend, um, but once the friend found out who I was, the pastor of City Church, she immediately went into a story about how we as a church had helped one of her friends. I don't know who the person is, so that's a credit to our Mercy Ministry team. Um, There's so much ministry that happens that um, I'm not even aware about, and that's a glorious and beautiful thing. But it struck me, here we are as a church rooted in this city, um, helping to make a difference, change lives among actual people with real stories and names. Now, in this particular instance, I wasn't familiar with the name and the story. And it was from there that I went over to the third place. And at this point, I'm thinking all right, we'll just make an appearance to support um, what's happening that night. But I was feeling kind of tired and um, didn't want to stick around too long. Well, within a matter of three minutes, I found myself in an in-depth spiritual conversation, one of two that ended up happening over the course of probably the hour, hour and a half that we were there. And um, this conversation that I had, both of these conversations I had, but this one in particular was with a a person that I've, I've known pretty much since I've lived in the neighborhood. An unchurched person has been to City Church before occasionally, about once a year. Um, but it's clear to me that this person views me as their pastor. It's not something I looked for, it's not something I pursued, but it's something that I uh, find sacred, and it's an awesome responsibility to pastor people, um, hopefully into Jesus and into the family of God. But Uh, It's clear that there's lots of spiritual longing in this person. So here I am in this place, the third place, in this neighborhood, Cool Spring Tilton neighborhood, in this city called Wilmington, among real people with real stories and names, this one particular person I'm thinking of, and what had brought us together that night were things, ornaments, art, uh, work. It was fascinating to me, and it's fascinating as I reflect back on it, how there was this convergence of people, places, and things. Anthony Bradley uh, is a, a professor. He was uh, taught formally at the seminary where I graduated from, and he's now at King's College in New York City. He says, God's ultimate work of redemption in Christ includes people, places, and things. To faithfully participate in God's work of redemption, in other words, to see the gospel truly really flourish in the world, we must be attentive to the people, places, and things around us. All right, let's think through people, through the lens of Acts chapter 18. And as we look at the people in this narrative of Scripture, what we find is that ministry is personal. Ministry is personal. Right off the bat, we encounter Paul. Now, if we had been reading the book of Acts, um, all along, and you know this, this would not be the first time that we encounter Paul. If you're familiar with his story at all, and it's really helpful to realize that he was a real person with a real story. Now, for some of you, you're like, yeah, I get that, I know that. But still, sometimes when we read scripture, we can read it so quickly, we can be so familiar with it, that even though, yes, if we're asked, we would say, oh, of course, Paul was a real person, and these details are real and true, But sometimes we act like, you know, it's just another story that we might read. And so Paul was a real man with a real name, with a real story. And we know some of his story. Early on in Acts, he was actually one who opposed Jesus. He was a a man who opposed the church to the point of actually killing people and persecuting them as a result. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that something dramatic happened in Paul's life. He was walking on the road to Damascus and the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him. And from that point on, Jesus got a hold of Paul and changed the trajectory of his life. And Paul went from being one who opposed the Jesus in the church to one who now promotes Jesus and the church. And so that's just a little bit about Paul, but a real man with a real name and a real story. We're told um, at the beginning of Acts 18 that he left Athens and went to Corinth. In Athens, he had been debating with the philosophers there, engaging with them about how uh, the Christian story is true, that Jesus really is the Messiah. Um, but when he, Paul comes into Corinth, in verse 2, it says he finds a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, we're told, we'll come back to that, Recently come from Italy, we'll come back to that, with his wife Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla are the next two individuals that we meet in this text. From Pontus, recently come from Italy, and as we go further, we're told that because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, this was most likely due to disturbances in the synagogues in Rome as a result of the Christian message taking root and people becoming convinced that Jesus was really the Messiah. And Aquila and Priscilla, this is not the first time that they are mentioned, even in this chapter or in the remainder of the New Testament. And a fascinating detail is this, that um, after this uh, instance here, generally speaking, Priscilla is always named first before her husband Uh, Aquila. So for example, if you look down later in this chapter, these verses aren't included in the worship guide, in verse 18 of chapter 18, verse 24, you will find that detail, that Priscilla is actually all of a sudden now listed first before Aquila. John Polhill, a commentator uh, writing about this, says that that she is usually mentioned before her husband is remarkable for first-century usage, but is probably less due to her social status um, in the wider culture, more than to her prominence in Christian circles. Not to detract from Aquila's ministry, but Priscilla seems to have been one of those women, like Lydia, uh, whose service in the Christian community stood out. Fascinating details, right? We're just trying to put together, construct it a little bit real people with real names, with real stories, in the same way that we are real people with actual names and stories. Verse 5, we meet Silas and Timothy. Not the first time that if we'd been reading the book of Acts, we would meet them. But here in this chapter, it's the first time that we encounter them. Paul, or Silas and Timothy are Paul's companions, his partners in ministry. And they arrive in Corinth from Macedonia. And it is most likely the case that they brought with them financial support for Paul, freeing him to do more Vocational ministry, so to speak. Because um, if you read right after this, details with um, Priscilla and Aquila, they um, had the same trade as Paul. They shared in the same trade, tent making. And so Paul joins them working um, during the day and then in his free time going to the synagogues to proclaim Jesus. But it seems like after Silas and Timothy come into town, um, again, we don't have a, a many verses here, a lot of details, but it just seems like Paul is suddenly a little bit more freed up to do vocational ministry. So it's very well possible that Silas and Timothy brought financial support to Paul, allowing him to do that. Titius Justice, a guy that we meet here, um, in verse 7, not told much about him at all. He's really fascinating and interesting to me for that reason. But we're told that Paul, um, at one point, you know, he's preaching in the synagogues and he's reviled. People are opposing him. And so he wipes his hands clean, so to speak, from from them and um, decides that he's going to focus his ministry in Corinth maybe now on the Gentiles. This was a pattern for Paul. Uh, Paul is a Jewish man. His heart was really for uh, the Jewish people. Um, but the Jewish people did not always receive the message of Jesus uh, well, and he often was persecuted and mocked and reviled for it. And so he would, um, within a certain city, go and focus on maybe where the the ground was more fertile, and people would respond. But we still, you're going to get this detail about uh, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Paul still can't stay away from the Jews, right? He still can't stay away from the synagogue. He continues that ministry um, even still. But Titius Justice is just a man. The only, one of the only details we're told is that he's a worshiper of God, which would have meant that he was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism and recognized the God of Israel as the true God. So, not necessarily a Christian, but believed in the Jewish God. He practices hospitality. He accommodates Paul. Now, we, we don't know for sure if Paul actually stayed at his house. We do know. Um, from a few verses earlier that Paul was staying with Priscilla and Aquila in their home. Um, We're not sure if um, now he's staying in the home of Titius Justice or if he's just using it as a home base for ministry. But whatever the case is, Titius Justice is providing hospitality, welcoming Paul in, and Paul is using it as a base for his ministry. And then finally, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. We don't know a whole lot about him either, but we're told that he comes to faith in Jesus. He comes to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah. He believes along with his entire household and is baptized. And then finally, uh, at the end of the, the narrative, um, Paul has a vision one night. Paul, as you can understand, is fearful because in these cities where he's going, and Corinth is no different, um, He is, like we said, being opposed oftentimes, uh, being beaten, all of these things, and you can understand why he might be fearful. And so in this vision, he's told, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What an incredible detail there. God is telling Paul, look, I know it's hard. I understand you're fearful, but stay put because many of my people are in this city. It's not necessarily referring to people who are already Christians. It's referring to those that God um, has knowledge of that will come to faith in Jesus. So uh, Jesus is basically telling Paul, um, have faith. The gospel is going to be effective. You're going to bear fruit. Keep going. I will protect you let's put all of this together. Ministry is personal. As we participate in the ministry of redemption in this world as God's people, we do so among people. Ministry is personal. God has intimate personal knowledge of his people. Like we said, they're real people with real names. Consider the example of Jesus in his ministry. I'm struck by all of the places in the gospel where it says that Jesus looked at him or Jesus looked at her. Um, There's one uh, moment in particular that stands out to me from Mark chapter 10. Jesus is in a conversation with who, who who we refer to as the rich young ruler, and Jesus is about to have to say something very challenging and hard to him. But first it says, Jesus looking at him, loved him, and then said to him, But Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus had personal knowledge of people. Who are the actual people around you? One of our um, tendencies is to just go through life so fast that we disregard people. You know what I mean? You know, we, we may, on a theoretical level, say that yeah, yeah, we regard people, like we think highly of people and all of that, but the way that we live our lives, the way that we get so busy, in practice, we end up disregarding people far too often. And Jesus calls us into this practice, this discipline as his people, to learn to look at people and to love people, to value their stories to, to seek that personal knowledge of them, to not remain at a distance, but to actually enter in to the stories of people, to hear about who they are, to hear about their fears, their dreams, to hear about their stories and how they've been shaped. You see, we we can't really bring the gospel to bear in a way that we can see it flourish, it flourish without personal knowledge of people. It's the way that that God has designed it to be, and. What's so freeing and helpful for me is to recognize that God has intimate personal knowledge of me. Even when I didn't want to be known, God always knew me, but even when I didn't want to be known in that way, even when I wanted to keep God at a distance, even when I wanted to run away from Him, God still sought me with his personal intimate knowledge, he entered in. And that is the essence of the Christian faith, the the gospel story, isn't it? That God in the person of Jesus Christ has entered into the world. He enters into the lives of real people to the extent that he looks at them and loves them. So who are the actual people around you? I want to suggest to you an exercise to do, not necessarily in this moment, but the exercise is this, to take time this week to reflect and prayerfully, to prayerfully reflect about who are the actual people in your life. And what I want you to do is I want you to write down their actual real names. And maybe what would be helpful to you as you're creating your list is to maybe jot down notes, just little details about their story um, that you might know, that you find interesting, fascinating, or relevant for whatever reason as you're prayerfully reflecting on them at that time. And ask God, once you've created your list of the actual people with real names, and also fair game, is to maybe list people that you know of, and maybe you've wanted to get to know more, you you want to seek more personal knowledge of, but for whatever reason um, you haven't, you could include, include such people as those on your list as well. But then after you've created your list, Ask God to show you, to help you, to teach you how to gain more personal knowledge of these people, how to enter more fully into the details of their lives, into their stories so that you might incarnate, again, just a fancy word, um, incarnation is um, the, the doctrine that God in the person of Jesus took on flesh, so that you might incarnate the very presence of Jesus in their lives more fully and more attentively. Don't settle to know people abstractly. Now, this is going to look different depending on how we're wired, not depending on how wild we are. Um, I mean, that that plays into it as well, I guess. But how we're wired, what our personalities are like. So for example, I'm an introvert. Um, and I, whenever I bring this up, I always uh, um, comment on it because it might be surprising to you. You're like, well, I'm an introvert, and I could never stand up in front of people like you're doing. Well, this actually isn't easy for me. Um, I'll go home this afternoon and crash um, because I have exerted all that I'm able to exert uh, for, a, for a Sunday um, in terms of being with people like you. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm an introvert. And so, when, if I, like doing this exercise, I create this list, it does not mean that I'm going to all of a sudden enter, like, um, certainly not obnoxiously, into the lives of these people, and I'm going to be this bubbly, vibrant person necessarily. I'm going to still be me. But still, uh, we can't use, I, I can't use my introversion as an excuse to not seek personal knowledge of people. So, maybe if you're more introverted, your list should be smaller to begin with. Because if you're like me, you, you probably prefer to go deeper in relationship with fewer people. Um, so this isn't going to look the same for all of us. It's going to look differently. But I, I think that, you know, the whole, remember, the point of the sermon is about um, faithfully participating in God's work of redemption. And In order to do that, we have to grow in attentiveness of the people, places, and things around us. And I think that creating a list of the actual people in our lives, is just one way that we can become more attentive to them and who they are. Now let's talk about place through the lens of Acts 18. And the point we want to make here is that ministry is local. So when we talked about people, we said ministry is personal. Now as we talk about place, the point is ministry is local. Again, going back to verse 1, we're told that Paul left Athens And went to Corinth. Now, it's easy, as I already mentioned, when it comes to the names of people. uh, I didn't say this. One of the reasons sometimes that I think we just skip over the names of people in the Bible is because we don't know how to pronounce them. Um, I I actually taught on this passage at a youth workers' event yesterday, and I shared that when we were going through the book of Genesis all that time, um, every week, like early in the week, as I started looking at the passage, I would open it up and say, Please, Lord, don't let there be hard names this week because I would stand up and not even be exactly sure how to pronounce them. So that's okay, but they're real people with real names, with real stories. Um, It can be easy for us to just glance over these names of uh, cities or places. But these would have functioned in the lives of these people back then in the same way that places function for us. Wilmington means something for me and to me. Newark, Middletown, Kennet. I could keep going if I left your town or city out. I didn't, I didn't intend to. Uh, don't take it personally. But you get what I'm saying. These are places with names, and histories come along with these places, right? They're, they're not neutral, we, we could say. And God desires for us to seek knowledge of the places in which He has placed us. And so, Paul left Athens. Well, what was he doing in Athens just before this? I mentioned he's debating and reasoning with the philosophers there. Athens um, was very different than Corinth because what do we see Paul do in Corinth? He goes into uh, the synagogues to talk to the Jews. You know, these aren't the same cities. They're not the same places. They're different. And Paul contextualizes or adapts his ministry in light of that. Let's talk about Corinth just for a moment. You know, I think it would be fun to lay out some details because it was an actual place, and this is the city in which this passage is situated. During Paul's day, Corinth was a newer city. It was the largest, most cosmopolitan city in Greece, and it was a major center for commerce, and it had two important point, ports, one on the east and one on the west, and um, what this resulted in was that Corinth was the Greek center for east-west trade. What about the spirituality or re- religion of Corinth? Well, the traditional Greek gods were worshipped. There was a Jewish settlement in Corinth. You know that's clear from um, this, this text, right? Paul uh, is, goes into synagogues, he's talking to Jews. But among the Greeks, to live like a Corinthian meant what? Or try to guess what? To live immorally. So that starts to tell you something about the city of Corinth. And Um, It makes a lot of sense when you go a little bit later in the New Testament and you look at Paul's letters to the Corinthians, even in the church, they're struggling very much with immorality. And so for a Greek, they would have used this saying, to be a Corinthian is to live immorally, or to live like a Corinthian is to live immorally. That's a little bit of background uh, about Corinth. There's a whole lot more we could say, but it it just helps us to think about Corinth with some level of de- of detail. Pontus is a place that's mentioned. Italy is mentioned. Rome uh, is mentioned. And by the way, about Rome, think about something. How would the gospel have, because this is where Priscilla and Aquila uh, came from most recently, how would did the gospel already reach Rome by this point? This is probably around 50 uh, AD. Well, one commentator says, by Christians like Priscilla and Aquila traveling the routes of trade and commerce, and carrying their faith wherever they went. Real people in real places. Macedonia is a place that's mentioned. And it's not only towns or cities that are mentioned, but um, places such as Titius Justice's home. Wonder what his home looked like. Wonder what it was like. Same with uh, Aquila and Priscilla, who Paul was staying with. Synagogues were actual places where um, they played in um, significantly into Paul's Ministry. Bethany Jenkins um, was formerly at Redeemer Presbyterian New York City, and I'm not exactly sure where she is now, but she says that one of the most beautiful and unique aspects of the gospel is that it can be lived out by all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Now, let's consider the example of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John says, The word. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus moved in to an actual place. He walked among actual places. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Real people with real stories read real details. Jesus had been brought up. He was raised in Nazareth. In the same way that you were raised in Nazareth, whatever your hometown is or was. And so to participate in God's ministry of redemption, we have to flesh out the gospel in real places among actual people. This is why one of the reasons why we um, don't refer to our community groups as the Tuesday night group or the Wednesday night group, because we want to situate them in the places in which they exist. So the Cool Spring-Tilton community group, the Trinity-Vicinity community group, um, so on and so forth. And we have the Newark group outside of the city as well as the Kennett group, identifying them with these real places that have histories. And not, um, not all these places are the same. And I especially encounter this and rub up against it when I'm doing community group leadership coaching. When I am meeting with the Newark community group, um, their context is very different than the context in which the Cool Spring Tilton group is in that when I coach their leaders. The Newark group, there's no two people that come from the same neighborhood or in the same area necessarily, whereas the Cool Spring group, at least over half the group, live in this neighborhood. Those are significant differences that you have to think through, and it um, helps define how you approach ministry and how you look at the place that you're in. And so when we talk about these places, it, it's, we're not just doing it um, without giving thought to it, we're doing it intentionally. These are the places where Jesus has put us, and we want to represent Him in those actual places. It's why we gave birth to the vision of the third place in this neighborhood, because as we looked at the neighborhood, and this took time, when we first started City Church, uh, as we met as a core group, I would regularly tell them, look, we're not going to look to create anything new except for a church anytime soon. We're going to just simply seek to get to know this neighborhood and love this neighborhood. We are not coming into it as the saviors of this neighborhood. There there are churches and people who have been here far longer than us. We're going to take a posture of humility and learn. But over time, one of the things that we recognized was that we really lacked a third place. In the summertime, there are more third place-like things, weekly farmer's market, porch parties. But in the wintertime, and what really um, caused me to see this was going over to Trolley Square to meet people for coffee and seeing people from my neighborhood, meeting other people from my neighborhood for coffee. And we realized this is a, a need. This is one way that we can serve the community given what we have um, come to learn about this place. And so we think about ministry through the lens of place. It matters. It's significant. It's important. So pay attention to the places where God has you and ask God to deepen your love for those places. Because I know for some of you, you hate the place where you currently are. Could be your physical home, neighborhood, apartment, or it could be your workplace, your school, you despise the place where God currently has you. Bring that to God. You know, it may be that you're not called to be in that place long term, but that's where you are now. And so ask God to help you to love that place. And like God told the exiles in Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah, seek the welfare of that place, put down roots, make it your own while you're there. So list out the various places, coming back to that list, list out the various places in your life, your physical house, um, your neighborhood, your town or city, your workplace, all of the places in which you frequent, in which you have roots, list them out. And then prayerfully reflect on them and ask God to deepen your love for those places, ultimately for the people who reside in those places. All right, let's look at things now through the lens of Acts 18. And the um, point here is that ministry is physical. I know that sounds weird. So, so far we've said ministry is personal, ministry is local. Ministry is physical. What do I mean by that? Well, I pointed out this detail about Paul um, joining up with Priscilla and Aquila. You know He stays with them, and then they go to work together each day. They share the same trade of tent making. This is not a lesser way of life than ministry. For Paul, yes, he was doing tent making orders order to help support his ministry, and it's probably why he was able to do less of it, when Silas and Timothy, as we said, came into Corinth because it's very well possible they brought financial support for Paul. But still, even with that being the case, this tent making, whatever it specifically looked like, was not a lesser um, way of life, was not a less valuable form of work in God's eyes. Priscilla and Aquila did it, Everything that we do matters. We say in our vision, because Jesus Christ is Lord over every square inch of the city, we believe that. We believe that Jesus cares about every part, every aspect, every arena of life. And as his people, we are called to uh, bring the gospel to bear in all of those areas and arenas of life. There's a woman named Amy Sherman, and she uses the phrase, whole life disciples. I love that whole life disciples. We are to be whole life disciples, following Jesus in every area of life, not um, settling to, as we often talk about, for this spiritual versus physical dichotomy, but rather for viewing all of life as an avenue to know Jesus and to make him known in the world around us. All of our vocations are important. They're important opportunities for us to bring glory to God and to love the neighbors around us. We all ask this kind of question regularly, don't we? Does what I'm doing really matter? And and here's what we can say from the biblical perspective. God does not disdain the ordinary and mundane. God does not disdain the ordinary and mundane. God actually himself enters into it, and in the person of Jesus, we see in the gospels Jesus doing some very ordinary and mundane things. Consider the example of Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verse 3, people in seeking to understand the identity of Jesus and who he is and where he's come from say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Jesus spent time working with his hands. We might say, that kind of work is not spiritual or sacred. All of life matters to God. And God calls us to enter into all of those areas of life, to use our minds, to use our hands, to work with the stuff of creation creation, to glorify Him. And God gives us things, gives us stuff, gives us money, gives us homes. He gives us the ability to make things such as art or whatever it might be, these are not unimportant things. How do we use them and leverage them for the kingdom in order to make Jesus known? All right, finally, the conclusion is this. We've talked about people, places, and things. The conclusion is this, ministry is spiritual. Verse 4 says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Verse 8, many Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Verse 11, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The word of God, the Bible, the story of Scripture was central to Paul as a person and to his ministry. That's what he devoted his life and ministry to, uh, explaining and teaching the Word of God. You see, the power for life, the power for ministry does not come in our ability ultimately to grow in our attentiveness of people, places, and things, to be really wise and crafty and understanding culture and all of that. Power is only found in God's Word and His Spirit. And that's what we we find here in this narrative. Yes, absolutely. I'm not undoing my whole sermon now. Yes, we are called to grow in attentiveness, to become more aware of the people, places, and things around us. But we are to do that through the lens of a spiritual reality. To ask Jesus regularly, what are you up to among the people, places, and things around me? And how are you leading me? to bring the good news to bear? How are you leading me to proclaim the gospel and to flesh it out among these people, places, and things? Ministry is spiritual. The power comes from God's Spirit in us. I go back to that vision that Paul has. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. This is a spiritual vision for Paul. This is a divine commissioning. What is going to sustain Paul long-term? In the face of persecution, in the face of injustice, all of these things, what is going to sustain Paul? It's not going to be his own strength. It's not going to be his own wisdom. It's going to be the Spirit of God manifesting himself in and through Paul's life. So the spirit of Jesus shows up to Paul in this vision and says, do not be afraid. Keep going. Pursue knowledge of people, places, and things, all the while bringing the gospel to bear on all of it. I, for I am with you. That actually is the good news of the Bible, that God is with us, with his people. And so, as we wrap this up, thinking about people, places, and things, we, as we participate in the work of redemption, the ministry of redemption that God is doing in this world, we have to grow in a attentiveness of people, places, and things. But we do that all the while dwelling with Jesus. Jesus is our priority. Jesus is the one that we seek to know and to ask for a fuller measure of his spirit. Zach S. Wine, who is, is a pastor, seminary professor, says the Christian, Christian life and ministry are an apprenticeship with Jesus toward recovering our humanity and through his spirit, helping our neighbors to do the same. I'll say that one more time. Christian life and ministry are an apprenticeship with Jesus toward recovering our humanity and through his spirit, helping our neighbors to do the same. That's our vocation. Regardless of what your specific vocation in this world is, that's the vocation that we all share in. Apprenticeship with Jesus. Learning from him. Learning that he is Lord of our lives. Um, Growing in Christ's likeness. Becoming more like him. And inviting and helping our neighbors to do the same as we live among the people, places, and things around us. Consider the example of Jesus here. Luke chapter 4. Verses 14 and 15. This is after um, the temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and taught in the synagogues. You see what God did there? The Father bestows His Spirit upon the Son for His ministry. It's as though Jesus gets ready to go into the ministry among people, places, and things which the Father has called him to, but he can't do it without the fullness of the Spirit. And so he's given the fullness of the Spirit, so he goes into Galilee, a real place, right, with real people in the Spirit. And that's our hope, that's our prayer as a church among the people, places, and things around us, that we would dwell with Jesus in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful to you that we get to be your people, that we get to participate in your ministry of redemption in this world. We pray that you would give us a greater attentiveness to the people, places, and things around us, Deepen our love for those people, places, and things. And I pray that you would root us firmly and deeply in your presence, that we would abide in you, that we would seek more of your spirit, that we would be hesitant and reluctant increasingly to live in our own strength and power. Make us reliant on you so that as we dwell and live our lives among real people, places, and things, that we would actually represent Jesus and that people would come to know him. We pray this in and through his name, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.